0: Tonight on NBC.
1: Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need.
0: To inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again.
0: From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast. We're calling on your help to make your listening experience the best imaginable. All you need to do is take a short survey. Visit acast.com slash research. That's A-C-A-S-T
2: dot com slash research. Your opinion matters.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
0: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Delicious
2: food that's more wholesome and at the same time costs less.
0: Curry house was opened in, London in 18... Although the ration was intended to provide sufficient food to sustain five men for one day.
2: You're listening to the feast, where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon, where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And each week, we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters, or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we are giving you a seat at the table. This is a podcast where meals make history. That slightly scary bubbling noise you're hearing is the sound of our homemade attempt at Niangao, or steamed rice cake, made by millions around the time of year to help bring in what's often called Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, or the Spring Festival. The year of the fire rooster is about to begin, and my husband Mike and I are preparing a mini-feast at home to celebrate, which in reality means staring fearfully at our stove while it makes a horrible clattering noise. But we'll get to that. Today on The Feast, we're doing something a little different. We're bringing you two stories, one past and one present. While Mike and I get things ready to ring in the new year in the 21st century, we're also going to be bringing you stories of a banquet held in northern China over 1,800 years ago. But if that bubbling noise didn't already give it away, now may be the time to admit that we're pretty much novices when it comes to cooking many of the dishes we're attempting tonight. We're relying on tips and tricks from our friend Jackie, who is originally from Hong Kong, and knows way more than we do about how to make these New Year's goodies. We'll also be relying on a few cookbooks, and that fickle friend of home cooks everywhere, the internet. But there is a method to our madness. Our little New Year's meal is a modern parallel, of a traditional feast that took place during what is known as the Han Dynasty, which roughly stretched from around 206 BC to 220 AD. So, for example, when Julius Caesar and Mark Antony were doing their thing in Rome, the Han Chinese were cooking up a storm, coming up with dishes, variations of which are still made throughout China today. See, the Han Dynasty is often thought to have cemented China as a culinary powerhouse, with hundreds of surviving recipe books and records of feasting that indicate a gastronomic culture to rival anywhere in the modern world. From purpose-made cooking utensils to highly formal banquet etiquette, the Han didn't eat to live. They lived to eat. Of course, Chinese cuisine isn't just one style of food, but one with countless regional variations. It's also responsible for some of the oldest known dishes, spices, and sauces, many of which are still in daily use in thousands, if not millions, of homes and restaurants, both in China and around the world. That Chinese food is among the most ancient in the world shouldn't be really news to anyone. But interestingly, the Chinese Cuisine Association has petitioned unsuccessfully for years for UNESCO to recognize Chinese cuisine on the world list of intangible cultural heritage. Now, just to give you a few examples of what UNESCO considers to be items of intangible cultural heritage, we have Belgian beer, Korean kimchi, all of Mexican cuisine, and what is oddly known as the, quote, gastronomic meal of the French, both on there. Even something that's rather generally referred to as the Mediterranean diet was officially approved by UNESCO to be on the list back in 2013. Now, it's defined as the cultural identity and continuity associated with eating together throughout the Mediterranean basin. This category of the Mediterranean diet represents on UNESCO the collective cuisines of Cyprus, Croatia, Spain, Greece, Italy, Morocco, and Portugal. But Chinese cuisine? Application denied. The reason? Too general an application. Okay, maybe they have a point. After all, what do we mean when we talk about Chinese cuisine? China is home to over a billion people. China itself has recognized no fewer than eight different culinary regions within their country, including Cantonese food, Sichuan food, and Hunan styles of cooking. And that's just within the country. What about the millions of people who have emigrated to other countries over the years, blending their home cooking styles with the ingredients and customs of their adopted homes? Chinese cooking in America, for example, has only recently been recognized as its own unique style so much so that there's now actually a restaurant in Beijing dedicated to serving what they call American-style Chinese food. Scholars, too, have started to take notice. There's a great book by Andrew Ko on the subject called Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. But I'd submit the good folks at the CCA, that is, the Chinese Cuisine Association, have a strong case, too, Archaeologists and historians have uncovered evidence that show cooking and feasting traditions that go back thousands of years in China. Regions of modern China are responsible for giving the world soy sauce, bean curd, rice wine, even noodles for pity's sake. Shouldn't we call this pretty strong evidence for cultural heritage? Which brings us back to our meal for today. Now while Mike and I get our New Year's feast going, let's step back about 1,800 years for a minute. To visit the people responsible for providing the inspiration for our feast today. We're heading just outside the city of Zhengzhou, today the provincial capital of the Henan province in eastern China. Today, the city has over 6 million people, but even when we travel back to roughly the year 160 AD, not much has changed. The city at the time was still a major urban area, a provincial capital with already a long history as a powerful trading post. Now we're heading just a little out of town, to a funerary complex with two tombs. Not the first place you may think for a banquet, but stick with me. We pass by the carved stone animals and the massive gates heading into the two tombs, both home to intricately carved stonework and colorful murals at one point probably filled to the brim with lavish grave goods. Unfortunately, the goods have long been picked over by grave robbers, but the stonework and murals are our key for our meal today. The Han were people obsessed with food. Detailed recipe books, instruction manuals on banquet etiquette, market prices for food, all these have survived and have given historians a detailed glimpse into a food culture almost 2,000 years old. Now, unfortunately, I can't give you the names of our hosts for today. The two occupants of the tomb, a man and a woman, as well as the names of any of the cooks responsible for our historical meal, are either lost to the sands of time or only guessed at by archaeologists and historians. Now, they were probably a husband and wife, and judging from their tombs alone, they were clearly people of means during their lives. Perhaps even connected to the imperial court, maybe even related to the emperor. It's also possible that they were simply high-ranking officials of some kind. But it's clear, whatever they did in life, they had the resources to splurge on a set of elaborate tomb complexes, each with several rooms. Today, they're known simply as the Dahuteng Tombs. The tombs are an everlasting symbol of our host's lifelong devotion to food. Throughout the numerous rooms of both, are scenes of opulent banquets and feasting. In the eastern chambers of both tombs, what historians have started to call the kitchen chambers, we can find the inner workings of how cooks over 1,800 years ago would have prepared multi-course meals for elite members of the Han dynasty. The survival of these intricate carvings and murals have meant that archaeologists can identify some of the earliest dishes and food eaten in China. It also means it's provided us a step-by-step guide for our own Han Dynasty-inspired New Year's meal. The murals let us know not only what was eaten, but also in what order. We'll put up images of the carvings and murals we're using today on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. So how did a member of the Han Dynasty start a banquet? Let's head to the North Chamber of the Wife's Tomb, where we find the start of the meal. Here we see a stone carving showing a woman, or a man, apparently historians can't decide, seated on a low couch at a low, long table. Given its size and the number of cups in front of her, or is it him? It's pretty clear this is our host for the evening. Now the scene shows that some guests have already arrived. They're kneeling on mats and are organized in a rough rectangle around the room. Of course, you'll want to keep your eyes on the folks closest to the host. They're the important ones. Seating was highly important even during the Han Dynasty. The closer you were to the host, the more important you are. As more guests arrive shown in by our hostess' servants, we can think that they're given a cup of wine and invited to sit on a mat. Now, the next question, of course, has to be, what cocktail is best to open a Han Dynasty banquet? The joys of alcohol were already well known to the Han. The favorite drink seems to have been alcohol that had been made from rice or even millet. Historians have a tendency to call it wine, but in reality it was much more in the middle of the spectrum between wine and beer, especially given the grain. But whatever you want to call it, you couldn't have a proper Han feast without pots and pots of the stuff. Looking at our Han friends on the Stone Relief, a few guests are already starting to enjoy themselves with at least a drink or two. Which brings us back to the present. Following in Han tradition, we wanted to open our own New Year's meal with some Chinese rice wine. But it seems like Japanese sake has overtaken the market, at least in Toronto. We were able to find a bottle of Chinese baiju, an alcohol often made from sorghum but can refer to any grain-based spirit. Although it looks like the folks in the carvings were drinking it straight. We thought it best to use our cheap bottle of Baiju as a base for some strong cocktails. So this, it is, um, our maple Canadian yeah. Baiju yeah. Collins, apparently. So it's, um, one and a half ounces of the Baiju. Alright. Smells like I remember. Can I smell it? You know, they said it smell, it's supposed to smell somewhat like pears, um, and I can see that. Okay, then it's going to be half an ounce each of our maple syrup. Okay. Okay, so three-fourths ounce per glass of lime juice, and then soda water to top up, and um, plus three to four dashes of bitters. All right, cheers. Cheers, cheers right? friend. That's not bad. It's not bad. Like Much I to our a- own surprise, feel- the Baiju cocktails weren't bad. Admittedly not authentic to second century China, but still a nice way to ease into our cooking for the evening. And if you'd like to make our Baijiu cocktails at home, which we're affectionately calling the maple rooster, patent pendic, we'll put up the full recipe on our website. But drinks, of course, are only at the very start of the meal. While our Dahu Ting hostess hands out small clay cups of rice wine to the guests, We're heading elsewhere in the tomb to see what Han dynasty cooks are making for the rest of the evening. This takes us to the eastern part of the tomb, which has been called the kitchen chamber since it's entirely covered by stone engravings of cooks hard at work. Here, ten servants are working their way through a pretty serious number of tasks. There's meat hanging on racks, people stirring giant cauldrons, someone stacks up an open oven with firewood. There's lots going on here, but let's for the moment focus on what might be next up for our guests over in the other room. In the bottom left of the relief, a man stirs a giant pot with a long-handled ladle. This is probably our next course, known as Geng or Kang, one of the oldest known dishes in China. Culinary historians such as Ying Yu believe the word originally indicated one of the five major culinary styles of ancient China— simply cooking by boiling food in water. It's basically soup, but Kang could actually indicate a wide range of different styles, from simple, clear, restorative broths to thick and hearty meat-based stews. Even before the Han Dynasty, etiquette books for banquets talk about Kang's the traditional first course, the way to indicate that milling over rice wine was done and that guests should take their seats. Cookbooks from the time tell us any and all kinds of meat were often used for Kang, including pheasant, ox, cycling pig, jackal, chicken, rabbit, even occasionally dog. Soups still have a huge role in modern Chinese cuisine, and it's possible to see a connecting thread between this very ancient style of soup and contemporary versions, particularly in what is known as West Lake Soup, named after a lake in China's eastern coastal region. Today, the soup is usually made with beef or pork, maybe some veggies, tofu, and thickened with cornstarch. West Lake is about 600 miles from the Dahu tombs, tombs, but the Han Dynasty controlled thousands of miles of territory, including the West Lake region. And it's likely that the traditions of thick keng or soups may be distant grandfathers to the modern version of West Lake. It's also a perennial favorite on Lunar New Year tables. And Mike and I had a go at making our own version. Soft tofu, soy sauce, and cilantro and/or coriander. The first thing that we're going to do is, uh, weirdly enough, we're going to cook the pork, which has been marinating. Um,
1: Tonight on NBC. Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department, please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break
1: every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the
0: network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
0: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories, because it tastes so good.
2: In in boiling water. Okay, that is weird. Actually, not weird at all, especially during the Han Dynasty. Since we're at a high-class affair, perhaps even a feast thrown for a government official... A special kind of keng may be in the pot here, known as grand soup, where a variety of meat and fish were boiled in water for a length of time. After the flavor of the meat and fish infused the broth, they were removed, and the simple, clear broth was served to the guests. Now, unlike many other dishes in Chinese cuisine, no condiments were allowed for this dish. Nothing to corrupt the simple, pure taste of this elite and special keng. Now, modern Westlake soup isn't just a broth, but the origins of the technique could be similar. Boiling the meat for Westlake soup is both a way of cooking the pork or beef, but also a way of making a quick broth as a base for the final soup. Another difference is, of course, the use of cornstarch. Corn itself wasn't introduced to China until probably the 16th or 17th centuries, and the modern product of cornstarch or corn flour was only invented in the 1840s. Since then, it's become an easy and shelf-stable thickener. Before this, grain like millet often was added to Kang, boiled for hours in order to thicken the broth. Now we don't have hours, so we'll be taking the modern approach and using corn flour. Quote-unquote slurry going, which is where we're gonna combine the cornstarch with water. So what you need are five tablespoons of cornstarch and five tablespoons of water and just kind of combine to make a slurry. Okay. So what about spices or vegetables during the Han dynasty? What were the cooks of ancient China using to flavor their food? Here, unfortunately, the murals and reliefs of Dahuteng let us down a bit. Although we can see large pieces of meat in the back of the kitchens, ox, for example, and some birds, it's hard to tell from the stones what spices or other vegetables they would have been adding to a dish. Thankfully, other surviving elements from the Han dynasty can give us a few clues. As I said, the Han loved food, so much so that they were even known for composing poetry in honor of their favorite dishes. Two famous poets, Mei Cheng from the 2nd century BC and Su Kan from the 3rd century AD, talk about a few different spices in their poems, such as ginger, cinnamon, and figara, which is unhelpfully called wild lime, despite it not being related at all to actual limes. Now, Mei Cheng even dedicated an entire poem to mushrooms, although it's not clear what kind he was so enamored with. For our modern Westlake soup, we'll be using a bit of ginger and some shiitake mushrooms. Which brings us to the tofu. Now, the recipe we were using called for soft tofu, which ended up proving almost more than I could handle when trying to slice and dice it. In a tofu tumble. I
0: did. Well, it's...
2: It, weirdly enough, the soft tofu... Soft.
0: Really soft. I feel like there's a vegan cookbook there somewhere. The oh touch yeah. of
2: the tofu. Oh man, if it has not been done, we should do it. Pen names. That's all I'm saying. But more than my apparent inability to cut it, tofu has been the subject of many a fiery academic debate on ancient Chinese cuisine for decades. Simply put, how old is it? Who was the first to perfect the process of coagulating the milk or juice of soybeans and using the curds in dishes? Japan has claimed it. So has Korea. But many a historian has pointed to the carved stone walls of the Dahuting tombs to help China claim the noble bean curd as its own. But to the perpetual headache of historians, no one can agree on what exactly the stone reliefs the Dahuting are showing us. Some say one of the reliefs are showing the five stages of making tofu—soaking the soybeans, milling them, filtering them, cooking, and letting it sit and firm up, finally pressing the tofu into shape. And to be sure, we do see a number of people mixing, sifting, pressing, holding various spoons up, so it's certainly possible what we're seeing are early forms of tofu making. We'll put up some pictures of this highly debated image so you can see for yourself. But as you'll probably notice, this isn't exactly the only thing these industrious cooks could be doing. For example, other historians say the same process could be showing how to make rice wine. Whatever these cooks are demonstrating, soy was a major foodstuff in this part of China and Korea by the third century AD. Not only used for making tofu, but also, of course, soy sauce, which may even have been a form of salary for high-level officials at the imperial court at the time. By the 2nd century BC, at the start of the Han dynasty, there were over 100 different kinds of soy sauce in use. But as far as tofu is concerned, there's unfortunately not much other proof of it as a major food in China until at least a few hundred years later. So the debate continues. With our keng complete, what other dishes would follow in a traditional Han banquet? Don't forget about those massive cuts of meat we saw on the other kitchen stone reliefs. But no meal, then or now, would be complete in China without grain, including, of course, rice. Then, as now, what kind of grain you offered your guests often depended on where you lived. In northern China, for example, millet seems to have been more popular than rice, grown, soaked, and boiled in large cauldrons. But wheat, barley, and hemp were also known to pop up on Han dinner tables. And rice, even in the north, was still a major staple. For our own meal, in honor of New Year's, Mike and I decided to make niangao, sticky rice cake. Like most of the dishes eaten around the Lunar New Year, the name of the dish sounds similar to other lucky elements or things you'd want in the coming year. Eating niangao which sounds like higher year in Mandarin, is said to help bring you fortune. Nangao is often made using a particular kind of sticky or glutinous rice. The starches in the rice, called amylopectin, break down when you apply heat to it, making it, unsurprisingly, well, sticky. It makes it the perfect base for cakes or dumplings because it holds together so well. The cake is often traditionally flavored with cane sugar, one of the oldest forms of sweeteners in the world, actually, apart from honey. Although the Han were known for raising honeybees, the high price of honey often meant it was used for medicine rather than food. As for sugarcane, we can again thank those food-obsessed Han poets who described the custom of chewing sugarcane or drinking its juice often as a way to cure drunkenness, which may come in handy later when we have another round of maple roosters but the practice of drying or making granular sugar out of the sugarcane may have come a bit later. Actually, probably was a technique introduced thanks to Chinese merchants learning it in India when they traveled there in the 600s. Nyanggao is usually a steamed cake, a technique often known as cheng, and which was perfected in ancient China because it was considered the best method for cooking grains and rice, the staple of almost every person's diet no matter their class. Grains and rice were at the time collectively known as fan, over time taking on the more specific meaning of just rice. Steaming was so prized a cooking method, it popped up in, what else? Poetry. Specifically, a 7th century BC book called The Classic of Poetry, also known as The Book of Odes, the oldest known collection of Chinese poetry. Mike and I are no steaming experts, unfortunately. And to be honest, we weren't prepared for the necessary commitment to steaming it would take to make our Gao. So, to make traditional Chinese New Year cake, uh, we've got our glutinous rice flour. Now, they say corn flour. We're going to use cornstarch.
0: Sure. Why not? It sounds glutinous. I
2: think it's the same. Yeah. Okay. We have our canned sugar, water and a handful of sesame seeds. It says pour the mixture into the prepared tin, steam for 20 minutes on high. Does that make sense? Does it? I don't know, I've never done this before.
1: That makes two of us.
2: Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah, that looks yeah, like it would work. So what What covering are we going to use for it?
0: Well, we, We've got a lid that fits over this. Okay. We don't have a domed one, but... I
2: think it's fine.
0: If we're supposed to put parchment over it.
2: Cover the mixture with some parchment to stop condensation dripping on the cake while steaming. Steam for 20 minutes on high, then two hours of medium heat. Keep refilling the water and checking every 15 minutes. Two hours of medium heat? I know. What? Did you hear that? That's the sound of two people not believing 3,000 years of Chinese culinary knowledge. What can I say? We're steaming novices. Me either. Two hours. Two hours. We are committing to this cake.
1: Gotta crack on. Yep. Okay,
2: I think we can skip ahead here. This of course brings us back to the very beginning where we started. Standing over a fiercely steaming and clattering New Year's cake. Okay. So, yeah. it's still quite hot, actually. It's tender. Well, I
1: looks...
2: mean, it did it did pull away here. I'm going yeah, to I'm going to get a photo. Gluten. It's it, it has gluten
0: glutenized.
2: Well it, it it looks like a it it, it it's looks a like a, a a thing that has been solidified. Yep. Um, apparently this is only kind of like part one. We can also tomorrow if we want cut it into pieces and um, saute it. Wow, it's it is Luteinous. it's gonna be chewy. Let's put it that way. It's
0: it's I'm gonna go with ooey gooey good, but I'm gonna yeah. reserve judgment on the good part. It's not bad.
2: Mm. It's very, um, I mean, it's not an assertive flavor. There's more texture than flavor. Mm-hmm. I can see how it would be good sautéed. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little butter? Yeah, exactly. Oil? Just to end the suspense, we did eventually end up pan-frying our niangao. And it was delicious. The little bits of rice and cane sugar caramelizing? Oh, we'll definitely be making that again next year. But how did that banquet go over in the Han Dynasty? If we head to one of the largest murals in the tomb, painted in the very central chamber, full of bright blues, reds, and yellows, we find the feast in full swing. Guests sit or kneel at their mats with cups and bowls in front of each person on their own low table. There are acrobats, jugglers, musicians to keep everyone entertained. Performers like this were a necessary part of any high-class banquet. Our hosts had provided a perfect meal for their guests. From the rice wine, to the keng, the multiple roast meats, and of course the rice and millet to accompany the dishes. Maybe even some tofu, depending on how you interpret that one kitchen scene. Even if we don't know the hosts of this extravagant meal, it's clear that food and feasting was an integral part of ancient Chinese life. So much so that a Han Dynasty couple devoted their entire burial complex to show just how well they could throw a party. And they aren't the only ones. Other tombs of the same era, not to mention the numerous poetry books, even recovered grave goods from the period, they all show a rich, varied diet, indicative of a culture where you didn't just eat, you dined. And that culinary tradition remains true, particularly around the Lunar New Year in China, where families celebrate with symbolic foods that help usher in a prosperous and lucky new year. So the question remains, is it time for UNESCO to finally recognize Chinese cuisine as an element of intangible cultural heritage? Professor of food culture Zhao Hongcheng, in the online culinary magazine The Sixth Tone, sees it as a slightly more complicated question. For him, too much emphasis has been placed on the expertise of ancient methods. How to cook tofu, the skills needed in making imperial Peking duck. Instead, he argues China and Chinese culinary historians need to look more at how food intersected with the wider Chinese population. Really, what food meant to people. Particularly those cultural and culinary traditions which China might be in danger of losing. It's an interesting question. Should the focus be on winning worldwide recognition for an established and ancient culinary tradition, perhaps the oldest cuisine in the world? Or should culinary historians of China focus internally on the many unanswered and unexplored relationships between the food and the people of China? We'll put up a link to his work on our website. As for us, Mike and I may not win any prizes for our New Year's feast, but let's just say we ended up with a pretty significant respect for the art of steaming and the slippery, wily nature of soft tofu. We'll put up all the recipes we use tonight on the website. And if you're interested in Chinese cuisine and its heritage, I can't recommend enough Can Ko's Phoenix Claws and Jade Trees, Essential Techniques of Authentic Chinese Cooking. It is a wonderful cookbook and culinary resource that breaks down some of the basic techniques of Chinese cooking for you to try in your own home. We also can't thank enough works by Frederick J. Simmons and Casey Chang, whose work on culinary history in China was a remarkable help while we were researching this episode. And, of course, a very special shout-out to Jackie, who helped us navigate the many perils of buying cane sugar and glutinous rice flour. For more on all this, and images from the Han tombs, please visit our website at thefeastpodcast.org. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast there, or on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a review. And if there's a feast or food story you'd like to hear, let us know by emailing us at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. Music today from Looperman and Jazar. Very special thanks to our technical director, Mike Port, who is currently hard at work on a first draft of Tofu Tumult, available in bookstores everywhere soon. We'll see you again in two weeks' time with more meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.
1: Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need.
0: To inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again.
0: From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.